lady here is looking for a book called Lake of the Long Sun by Gene Wolfe. Do you know him? Are you kidding me? I worship it. A reality is a crutch for people who can't handle science fiction. Welcome to Nerdologians, where we possess our listeners through their favorite podcast app in order to wage theomachy against our podcast rivals. These are your curators, Bryson and Zechariah. Today we'll be discussing Litany of the Long Sun, a part of Book of the Long Sun by Gene Wolfe. Enlightenment came to Pater of Silk on the ball court. Nothing could ever be the same after that. This is a spoiler-filled podcast. Listen to beware. All right, we better preface this by my usual Gene Wolf thing that uh, I'm obsessed with the solar cycle. And anybody that knows me knows that I'm obsessed with Gene Wolf, and it's annoyingly so. So if you've already heard all of this before in a side conversation, you don't have to listen to this podcast. <laughs> so, Zechariah, what did you think? Did you, I mean, we you, you were kind of 50-50 on Book of the New Sun. How did you feel about Book of the Long Sun? At least all the right. First so, time. Book of the New Sun, I would have difficulties recommending to a lot of people just because it is so. Whatever, whatever it is, it's so kind of weird and obscure and stylized to a, a point that only a certain type of people are going to enjoy it. And maybe even then, I would have to kind of explain what it is they're trying to enjoy before they get into it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, for sure. Uh, so they go in and like, what, what is this? Where am I? Yeah. You know that, uh, that meme where you have the guy like looking around? A little, yeah, more, de- like- little more detail. <laughs> yeah, we're okay. Right, 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 right. Yeah. All right. Yeah. I don't. I forget the, I forget the character. Is he from like Pulp Fiction or something? I don't know. Hell, but I don't remember. That is yeah. that meme. I think I know what you're talking about, though. But yeah, so I found that, and when you're saying Litany of the Long Sun, that's like the collection of the first two books. Yeah, Litany of the Long Sun is the first one, and then Epiphany of the Long Sun is the second half. Yeah, so I'm like reading them in the form of two actual books, which are, uh, I forget the name. Night Side of the Long Sun and then Lake of the Long Sun. All right, cool. So, Night Side of the Long Sun, I felt, is a way easier introduction to Gene Wolfe. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is, to start, once it starts, it's a bit slow, but once it kind of kicks into gear, I was like, okay, I'm I'm invested. This is right. this is cool. We've got uh, this priest dude, he's, he's about to rob a mob boss. I'm, I'm down. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, one the, of the best parts about the whole series is and i think it's really the strength is all the characters are super well done and articulated and they're all really fun and i think one thing that i would contrast about book of the new sun is the long sun always feels really fun to read you know as opposed to like the depth is still there but you're not like in book of the new sun the whole point of enjoyment is the fact that you have to like crack the code Long Sun is a lot more like you can you can read it and enjoy the surface story without trying to peer through the veil and find all the secrets. You know what I mean? Yeah. Lake of the Long Sun uh, kind of gets a little bit more into the obscurity territory, but never to the point of uh, New Sun. 
Mm -hmm. uh, so I had a little bit more difficulty with that one, but uh, it is interesting, an interesting ending. Uh, so there's more mysteries there. It's like, okay, why, <laughs> why is everyone trying to elect this guy as the ruler? Yeah. Yeah, it really is. It really is while you're reading it. Like, the mystery is is like embedded in the story, but sort of in the background, because mm -hmm. you'll notice like every time the guy gets some opportunity to influence someone, like Silk basically becomes friends with everybody in the entire book at some point, and then they become admirable. They become admiring of Silk, and it is like on the borderline of a supernatural power that is never really referenced as a supernatural power. Mm, mm. But yeah, initial thoughts. First book, I can easily recommend it to someone uh, a lot more people than I could New Sun. So I would say a 70 uh, or 7 out of 10 or whatever. Yeah. It's, a, it's, it's very solid uh, and it's not too weird. And those yeah. people who could get into the weird eventually, it's an easier, it's a shallower learning curve, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas New Sun is this very steep learning curve. It just drops you in and you're like, where am I? Yeah. It's almost like the opposite of it. And I think that's kind of what's interesting about New Sun Severian and Long Sun Silk. They are sort of like mirrors of each other. Later, it's sort of revealed one of the grand arching stories of the Long Sun is that there is a problem. Basically, I got to talk a little bit about the setting for this to make any sense. But essentially, you find out over time, pretty quick though, so I wouldn't really even call it a spoiler, that they're basically in a starship and the world is going on inside of this like cylindrical starship and that there's like this long sun going through the middle of it that is, I, I guess, some kind of like heat radiating laser beam or something. But part of the narrative is that the sun is not acting like it should. So, it, you know, you can imply that it's like going out, which is right, sort of the same, the exact same story with Severian and the New Sun. But like Severian and the New Sun is a very dark character that his moral value judgments are like off the wall all the time. And you, <laughs> and you just think like, this is like this evil dude, but for some reason he has Christ-like powers. And then Long Sun Silk is the opposite, where he is extremely intelligent like Severian, but he has almost too high of a moral compass, which mm -hmm. makes him make bad judgments all the time. And it's like they're opposite characters in some way. And I just thought in the whole scope of the solar cycle, I think it's really cool to see Gene Wolfe write an overly moral character. For me, Long Sun was a real shock to start reading. And it was like a breath of fresh air. Whereas in Severian, you almost don't like Severian until like how a second do, or a third read through. How do I feel about this dude? <laughs> yeah, you're just constantly, oh my God. There's a classic scene that everybody that's read this book has mentioned to me in some way, is the scene where Silk has infiltrated the mob boss's house and he hides out in this room and he finds out there's a prostitute in there 
and he's like highly attracted to the prostitute and she keeps trying to get him in bed with her and instead of the only course of action to silk is to leap out of the window to avoid the situation and then he hurts his ankle and this ankle being in pain is slowing him down is a thing in the entire book series and that's just a perfect nutshell encapsulation of silk like he'll he'll always take the moral way out even if the morality is a little fuzzy it's it's this constant weighing of more moral judgments through the whole thing even when they seem absurd yeah yeah i the big contrast we haven't mentioned is that silk is celibate and severian uh basically bones everything that comes across yeah literally pretty much every character female character in the book there was like there's like only one character is like okay I'm waiting. Okay. No, she died. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, exactly. One of the things that is really apparent really fast in this, when you start it is that they're living in like this semi Greco God pantheon of religion, right? Silk is a priest. And so this is probably more your area. If you want to jump in and talk about it, about how there is a, a lot of detail in like the system of sacrifices and what, should go to what god and like how the gods have different aspects of each other and etc cetera, etc cetera. okay what caught my thing was when they're actually describing the sacrifice they're like figuring out who's going to eat various portions of the sacrifice right mm-hmm. uh, and that's a big thing and like these the ancient greco-roman religion is that the sacrifice is like a shared meal uh you go to the sacrifice and you might get some of the meat that gets sacrificed. And so you're like sharing a meal with the gods. And we, we even see this in, uh, in Christianity. When we see the Bible, Paul is actually discussing this thing and saying, uh, talking about meat offered to idols. Right. And this is discussing this thing. And so Paul's whole point is, Hey, we have a sacrificial meal, which is the Lord's supper or the Eucharist. We're sharing our meal with God. You can't, you can't eat at this table and be over here with the other gods eating of their sacrifices as well, right? Mm-hmm. And like, if, maybe if they sell it in the market afterwards, uh, you can eat it then. But if you're going to the sacrifice and you're engaging in that to get some food, that's a no-no. Right. And that really, like, that whole... One of the strong points of the whole thing is that it's so well fleshed out, like all the systems and stuff, that it does give you, I don't know, as a Christian, and knowing that Gene Wolfe is a Catholic, it does, it almost seems absurd when you're reading it, like the amount of detail and stuff that's going into it, which I think is sort of one of your, maybe not an indicator, but like maybe on your second read through would be like an indicator for Gene Wolfe that like, there is almost an absurd amount of logic being put into this system of divination or something. And Mm -hmm. when the scenes where it's describing Silk doing the sacrificing and where he's like cutting off the head, I think is another weird, like illusion to Severian, but it it's like, you have this super morally good character and the, the scene where he is like doing the sacrifice is always described as like blood flew everywhere. And so he has this interesting contrast with, silk doing this act that seems to be savage and you know what do they call him like the the townspeople will call him a what is it it's not he'll correct them and say i'm an auger 
but he'll, it's some kind of derogatory term to the fact that he, he they call him butcher, right? I, no, okay, no. maybe. Okay, well, at some point, it, they call him a derogatory term for you know someone who sacrifices animals or whatever. So it, it plays into this whole thing where Silk is this good guy in sort of like a kind of evil religion, which plays a big part of the the whole story. But yeah, so and yeah, you have like this kind of some of the augury is like conducted using the entrails of animals or things like that. Right. Get that mentioned, which, yeah, that was a thing. Uh, har specs. Yeah. But, or har spec Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, but yeah, another thing is, yeah, this is a very <laughs> Greco-Roman Catholic religion in some sense, because you have this priesthood, they're celibate. They have like exorcisms and they have, <laughs> I think at one point it makes, the sign of addition uh right it's just the sign of the cross right <laughs> yeah. but it is completely disconnected from uh its catholic roots so it's like oh this is a plus sign yeah and there's some part in there where he like kind of self-reflects about it for a second and he's like we have no idea where this addition sign of addition came from it just came to us from the distant past so we still do it and so it's kind of interesting because it's like yeah you can tell how, you know, this is supposed to be so far in the future, how like this Catholic religion or something has adopted like a paganism of the setting, but it's still like within this Catholic Well, I think framework. at some point it says that one of the uh, the gods, was it Kypris or someone else, that uh, this religion was based on a religion where she came from. So yeah, uh, we can just assume that's probably Catholicism. Right. Really interesting stuff. And to kind of go into this direction a little bit, one of the interesting things about the Book of the Long Sun, and you kind of have to piece this together as you read the, the rest of the series, is that all of Silk's dreams are prophetic in some way. And there's a scene in the beginning of the book where he's talking to people about how you interpret the chrasmological writings. And I can't remember entirely how far he goes into it, but it's very reflective of that scene in the book of the new sun where him and Thekla are talking and they're discussing the three levels right, of interpretation. And I think it's kind of interesting because like it is written in the third person, but your, your, your main character is silk. So you're sort of seeing the world through silk's eyes, who is an auger. How I talked about earlier, you can enjoy the surface level of the book. Well, this, the next level of the book is sort of like when you're, you've pieced together that his dreams are prophetic but they're laced in symbolism. And so it's kind of like you as the reader have to become auger in order to interpret the deeper meanings and the prophecies because like they're very kind of logical in a way. And you'll notice that Silk, like there's, there's just this theme going on about how this idea of like interpreting prophecy or interpreting dreams or interpreting omens is like a dangerous business. Because in some kind of way, all these prophecies are true, but Silk misinterprets them. So, you know, it's kind of a cool literary device in that you have to, you know, become the auger yourself in order to, like, deep peel back the veil of the deeper mysteries of the book. And, uh, yeah, but uh, that's Yeah, cool but part. speaking on the uh, plus sign thing, there was a big thing of kind of possession in this book. That's pretty huge. I think the exorcism thing was interesting because you have this whole exorcism ritual, but 
did the exorcism ritual actually work or did it work because he just threatened the, <laughs> the person? Yeah. Yeah. I loved that. I loved that. Um, yeah. In the first book, really early on, I think it's, it might be chapter one. Maybe it's chapter two, but Silk encounters the, uh, the, the probably the main villain not i would really call him the villain of the book but the the crime lord blood which i mean yeah. a crime lord named blood how much cooler can you get but they have this conversation about like uh what is the difference between enlightenment and possession now silk gets enlightened in the beginning of the book and he like sees all and you know he has these visions of the future and all this stuff and then this is your first clue that possession is going to be like a theme in this story. And Bloods, he talks about, he mentions that he has met people that have been possessed by the gods. And he wants to, and I guess he didn't like what he see, saw or something. And he asked Silk, like, well, what's the difference between, you know, possession and enlightenment? And then Silk gives some kind of strange answer to it where you know enlightenment is like uh you get to see everything and possession is you know you're possessed or whatever but yeah to going on what you're saying this kind of leads into this weird gnostic view right like because uh at the end of at the near the end of the the night side of the long sun silk has part of his bargain for getting caught sneaking into blood's manor and trying to threaten him or something to like get his church back uh, he says, okay, I'm going to let you go, but you have to work for me. And your first job is we have at, at the brothel, there is a possession problem. And one of the prostitutes is getting possessed or something. And so Silk goes there, figures out it's this other person that's somehow possessing him. And then like, he goes to this, like, you know, exorcism ritual but his calls to the gods don't really work. It's his threatening of that actual person that scares the spirit off. And it kind of lends to this whole thing where like, okay, none of the actual ritual worked other than Silk like threatening the person who's possessing this person and it scares him off. And so, but it's a great scene and it's like funny in a way. And uh, yeah, it just leads to the whole thing where like maybe Silk's religion isn't what it's supposed to be and fuels the whole what's really going on here motif yeah for those who who've done new sun already or let's do our new sun episode it's not going to be surprising that this is a sci-fi thing right where yeah. everything is seemingly normal but then you find out there's this whole uh science fiction element right so yeah they're on a ship they're on a big old ship. This is probably spoiler territory, and it kind of goes into like my overall. We've been doing spoiler territory. Yeah, territory I know. For a while. You're gonna I, I, up I feel bad in a way on this one. <laughs> uh, but anyways, in the book of the New Sun, there are passages that reference that, like so many years ago in the past, during the rule of the ruler Typhon, Typhon sent out these starships. Oh, we've already gone into Typhon now. <laughs> Oh, yeah, right. right. Well, yeah. Okay, went into Typhon. He sent out these starships. And uh, basically, this takes place on one of those starships. And so, uh, hell, I forgot what's going with this. But part of the whole thing is that they're supposed to be going somewhere. But I think the whole thing is that they're returning to Earth. And so, all right, this is too much spoiler territory. This is like way farther in the series. <laughs> never mind, never mind. 
you just have to read the books. But um, part of the interesting thing about the starship is that it, it's almost like constructed in this old fashioned like view of the universe where there's like an underworld and there are things flying around in the sky called flyers that are mentioned several times and well they'd be like the elements right because basically their role is to make sure that the natural world quote unquote the world the starship are functioning in the proper order and they they like that's their whole role is to maintain the ship so part of this is since now that you've got the setting and this is this is kind of what it reminded me of but it's it's definitely reflective of like all of those myths about someone descending into the underworld but in this world the way that silk figures out that he's on a starship for sure the character Silk, is that he descends into the underworld through these tunnels and then like gets to a window or something and looks out the window and realizes that you know it's like plato's cave he has the experience of like oh my god there's like this whole bright world out here and it's it's crazy and this is the real true divine world not what we're living in etc etc so it's almost like a reverse plato's cave thing where instead of you gain enlightenment not by crawling out of the cave it's by going to the deepest point of the cave and that's how he finds out that his world is a construct or whatever all right so to back up a little bit to set up the that went on a crazy tangent there (laughs) uh you have these people they're living in these different cities right uh and by now you've probably already read the book because we've done spoilers or you just don't care and you just want to hear us talk <laughs> deep <laughs> for <spoilers>. sure <laughs> so you've got all these people living in these little city states or something like that and they they have these little rivalries going on but in these city states there are these priests of the gods uh some of them are like uh, pateras and materas uh and they conduct sacrifices or stuff. And then there's the augurs who like do augury on top of that. Uh, and they're like supposed to be celibate and they have these screens that sometimes the gods appear in uh, to give like divine messages, uh, screens or windows or something like that. Uh, but the place that uh, Silk is at, the, the window hasn't lit up in a long time. And so it was like, has the, have the gods abandoned us kind of thing. Uh, so that's the setup. And then we have the gods themselves, uh, who we have Pos, who is like the main god. And then you have Kypris. But then there's like these weird names of some of the gods, like Typhon, that's like an ancient Greek monster, as is Skyla. Uh, then you have Tartaros, which is like not even the name of the Greek underworld, it's the name of the. The prison that's under the underworld where yeah. all the nasty stuff is sealed. Uh, and you get stuff like that. And so it's like you get a, you're basically given a hint that these gods aren't necessarily out for the good of everyone because the names of the gods are like. <laughs> right. Yeah. Wait, we don't have Typhon in this one. That's from uh, New Sun. Sorry. Uh, he is eventually called this in this book. So, oh, all right. Yeah. So, yeah, the difficulty of doing the first half and not the second half. But yeah, it is revealed that it is Typhon. Oh, yeah. Pos, Pos is Typhon or a uh, simulation of Typhon. Right. Which that's the next thing we should probably get into a little bit is that uh, 
like Zechariah said, the gods appear in these screens, right? They call them sacred windows. So part of the fun is that you figure out that the sacred windows are actually like computer screens or something. Mm -hmm. And so one of the aspects that you learn about the gods pretty, pretty quick is that uh, they like possess people like in the conversation of blood. And how they do it is that, I guess, in advanced technology sci-fi fashion, when these deities come to the screen, they if you look at the screen and the deity looks at you, a little bit of that, it talks about it somewhere where they describe it as like a repeated flashing light or there's something in the lights that they see that like inserts the data into the person and now the person has that deity within them. So yeah, there's and like so, a data, a data copy of the some portion of the deity inside right. the person's head. And the classic funny thing is that when this is being described as silk, since he has no like technological prowess, he's like, I don't know about all that. Or something like he doesn't <laughs> understand it and like doubts that it could really work that way, which is hilarious. But um and then the goddess is like, okay, okay, I'm gonna dumb it down for you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's funny. And so that now you got this whole like interesting aspect of like there's several theophanies in these windows as the story goes on and there's always like someone that has gotten possessed by the deity whether you it's outright said or not which you know this all you know leads to the idea that the gods aren't like physical presences they are all artificial intelligence in this thing that is basically like heaven called mainframe and and <laughs> so that's not a clue <laughs> right right and yeah, so, so much more on the surface in this book you, that you figure out right okay yeah these these guys are probably right out. it's like that reflective <laughs> it's like the opposite of the new sun right where like you know it but the character like has no clue yeah you know what i mean like you know it's not severian hiding things from you it's like it's uh like silk can't figure out he can't put it all together but you're just like dude that's what it is like you know but um so yeah so now your setting is a starship in the future it is being controlled by a artificial intelligence that is like the consciousness uploaded from these deities from the new sun and now you know in perfectly gene will fashion these uh these like later in the books you'll find out that Poss isn't really as bad as, as he seems. And that really what he's trying to do is get everybody to flee the starship or whatever. But, you know, you get this interesting Gene Wolf like identity problem where it's like you have the real version and now you have the digitized version that aren't necessarily the same. They're definitely two distinct entities. And so this plays out even further into the idea that when these characters get possessed, it's discussed how even once the spirit leaves them and goes back into the screens, like a little bit of that deity is left within that person. So, you know, there is this ongoing, like becoming of these characters as they encounter these different deities, like uh, Silk, at some point he sees Poss for real. And so now he's like super Silk. And then like uh, Chanel and Hyacinth, there is both, like evidence that they have been possessed by Kypris, the goddess of love. And now they're like different characters after they've been possessed. By the and, way, Kypris is a uh, alternate name of Aphrodite or Venus. Yeah. Uh, 
I had to look that up, but it's like, okay. <laughs> there it is. So and that's interesting because she has a much more kind of positive connotation in this than, say, Skyla, right? Yeah. Or yeah. Uh, Harderos. Right, because those but, are uh, all, like, obviously very dark gods, right? And then, mm -hmm. and then like, within the storyline, Kypris is one of the gods that is sort of not, yeah, we'll just lay out the whole framework before we get into this but like basically part of it is that Poss has been betrayed by his family and they killed the real him even though the digital one still exists but i guess they're both digital but i don't know now i'm getting gene wolf confused but essentially there's like a war of the gods going on there's like Poss, who kypris and tartaros who was revealed later are still loyal to Poss, and then the rest of the family are like now trying to wage their like a counter strike because they think that Kypris has rebelled against them and stuff. So you'll see weird scenes where uh, like one character, two characters will be friends and companions, and then they get possessed by the opposing side, and now they're like a little bit sketchy, and now they're questioning whether this is a good thing or not, blah blah blah. But it's, a, it's this crazy, really intricately done character-driven plot. Like, you know, and it's kind of reminds me of the Plato's Cave thing, again, in a way, because every character in the world is in this state of, like, becoming. Like, they're constantly changing and developing. And it just kind of goes back into this thing where this is like an artificially set up platonic universe or something. So we've kind of established that the system is kind of sketchy. And at the beginning of the book, we get this enlightenment from this deity known as the outsider, who apparently shows up a couple times in the religious texts, but nobody really pays him that much attention. And then Silk is like, I'm doing the will of the outsider, but he kind of equates them with the other gods as well. Right. Even though yeah. he realizes he's kind of different because he's kind of outside of everything. Yeah. And so it's this weird, weird thing going on. But yeah. you kind of get the get the idea. There's almost a semi-gnostic cosmology in that there are the gods inside the world, which is kind of like a demiurge type character, and there's the god outside of whatever who's kind mm -hmm. of reaching inside and uh, yeah, for sure, initiating his own plans. Yeah, it's kind of interesting because. You got that aspect, and it kind of reminded me of like the unknown god. And it, it, this is a direct reference to later, of course, because you know, this is how we do it. But there's a scene where Silk is in the church. I can't remember if it's long son or short son, but um, he's in the church, and it's got like all the deities, right? And then there's like the blank, there's one that doesn't have a statue in it, and then he assumes that that's the the temple of the outsider or the shrine of the outsider which to me totally reflects the paul unknown god thing yeah it's like i see you have a temple to the unknown god or yeah god. yeah and then uh and then the outsider of course yeah he's portrayed as being outside the world and he's uh he's definitely supposed to be like the christian god or an aspect of the christian god that has somehow let me back up a minute. Gene Wolfe, when he he did an interview about uh, the Wizard Knight and the whole concept of the Wizard Knight, which apparently he was writing at the same time. Uh, that's wrong. He was writing a different one. Anyways, but the point is that like 
in a non-Christian universe, how could Christianity like spruce up naturally? So um, in this text, I guess it's by revelation, but um, part of it is how the outsider has like penetrated this other false world and how by going inside of it and having his prophet of silk or whatever, it's like how silks debates and internal conflicts about the religion he practices forces him to come to these conclusions of like well only the religion of the outsider is the true religion and then he'll say things like the outsider is the god of like the hurt and the broken and he won't ever ask anything of you that you can't handle and like this kind of thing so you can kind of see how this is like a christianity rising up in a pagan universe Gene Wolfe does this thing. It's kind of like Lord of the Rings, right? Where like God is in the universe, but it's not direct. It's some sort of like you see the influence of it or something instead of the entity itself. And so like the outsider, anytime the outsider to Silk is doing something, Silk will be like, oh, I don't know, but it's probably the will of the outsider. So like, you know, it's almost like the idea of the outsider is enough in the universe to spread the idea rather than like the outsider appearing in theophanies in the screens or whatever in direct interaction with the universe if he's like just the idea of him in the false world is enough to make them leave Mm -hmm. but yeah again like the semi-gnostic thing that there is kind of like a leaving the false world thing going on right yeah that's the that's the main goal i assume is that they're going to get out of the long sun world yeah the real world leaving the plato's cave as it were right something else i think that is really kind of a genius just the structure of the books themselves is that each volume of the long sun is like in its own genre so in the one we're discussing night side of the long sun silk becomes a sort of criminal or whatever and he's forced to enter into like one level of the underworld where um you know he's doing detective work he's trying to figure out you know he's sneaking into places blah 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 so it's it really comes off as like a father brown detective novel and at the end of it you kind of see that nothing that silk did within that level of the underworld really made a difference and and then the next world and then the next book he will go further into the underworld and um it takes on like the spy book genre where you know they're like sneaking in they're hiding out they're trying to figure out these secrets of the world conspiracies and right and so at the end of that one silk goes and he like you know defeats the enemy or whatever and you kind of see that basically now for some bizarre reason he is going to have to be the ruler and so and then there's a kind of a sense at the end of it that like everything that he did in this secret mission to go into the underworld leads him to believe that like okay basically i failed again and um so now he's going to go into like this even deeper world of the underworld which is like the world of revolution which is in the next book and then in that book, you kind of figure out that the revolution doesn't actually do what he thinks it's going to do. And then it goes on to the next one. And like the final decision or the final event to save everything is that he has to leave the world and like, you know, abandon the world and go into the real world or whatever. And to me, that's kind of like almost like a 
deconstruction of like secular heroes or something. And, you know, so the whole book is set up as different heroes and they all fail. And the real thing to do is to like abandon the world or something. So I thought that was a pretty cool thing about these books. Yeah, I think one of your uh, thing you mentioned to me is like, Gnosticism isn't necessarily wrong <laughs> if the actual right. system does suck. Yeah, and I think that's, I think that's kind of an interesting viewpoint because you know, we talk a lot. We have talked a lot on this podcast about how the the charge against ancient Gnosticism isn't really, it isn't really, I don't know, quote unquote correct, and that you know, you see elements of things that people will call Gnosticism in the New Testament. So it can't be like a total departure, blah, blah, blah. And I think this, maybe it is Gene Wolfe's kind of way of thinking that like, you know, if you are in a world occupied by false deities and you are in like a false system, that this Gnostic tendency, this tendency to escape or see beyond the system or something, that it's not, that's not a evil in itself it is context dependent yeah i think the issue with gnosticism is that they fundamentally mistaken the nature of the world itself and uh the elements involved in saving that world it's not that the gnostics are evil in that they're uh they're more their system is morally wrong like if if our real world is run by this kind of evil demiurge figure, then the right thing to do is to abandon that system and find a better one. Mm-hmm. And I, <laughs> I'm, try, I'm trying not to, uh, uh, not to mention certain Christian sects and how I, <laughs> I think their systems are horrible <laughs> because I, I don't want to make our show about uh, kind of, that if you can i'm gonna grab a beer if you can try to dumb it down and make it really vague if you can (laughs) can you all right i think there are i think there are certain certain uh versions of god that people kind of put out there that if they if they were true that would make make god less than god in some sense i think one of the uh one of the things that's very easy to do is to kind of view God as this super personified being within some greater cosmos, right? Like he exists somewhere, even though he's kind of everywhere, but he's kind of inside of existence. And if that is true, then he's not really like the greatest God possible, right? Uh, so there has to be something bigger. If, if he, this gets to the question of existence, right? So, if we say God exists, uh, at some level that's true, he is, but if we say he exists, existence has the connotation that he exists within existence itself. So he's inside of a world. And so if your God is inside of a world, then it's dependent on that world. And so the world is now greater than your God. I think there's this verse in the Bible that says the gods that did not create the heaven and the earth will perish with the heaven and the earth, meaning that uh, they're inside of the system and the system is mortal. So they, even if they're immortal, they will eventually uh, fade away with uh, the cosmos itself. 
And so if you have that kind of that view of a, uh, a deity, and if that view was true, then you've got a demiurge, right? <laughs> right. You don't have a, a god proper, theologically speaking. And then there's other versions which uh, uh, kind of suggest that God causes evil, like willfully actively causes it. And that's super problematic too. And I think if that was true, then the most moral thing to do would be to abandon that and try to find the real God uh, who is kind of higher and outside of existence. Yeah, which is totally, yeah, the total plot of uh, The Long Sun. Really. So in, in that sense, I would think Gnosticism is the moral alternative. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, and I think, you know, I think Gene Wolfe does a really good job in this of, like, displaying that idea. Because, you know, like you're talking, like, dude, there are a ton of people. And it's not, I don't know, it's, it's I think it's just, it just comes from ignorance. It doesn't come from, like, a oh, like, I'm intentionally, you know, doing idol worship. But there is like such an antagonism to like the Gnostic viewpoint of like the God beyond beyond or whatever. And, you know, this is just a great book to read to show you that that's probably like this whole, this whole plot of this book and this discovery of the outsider and whatever may seem Gnostic, but it's probably very close to what like the first Christians were doing. You know, I mean, like, a lot of the reports of the early Christians is how they like refused to participate in the Roman system and stuff like that. Like to that, to us, you know, like that yeah, we, so, we could almost get an accusation of Gnosticism out of that. If you were in some kind of like theological debate with someone that says we should just abandon it all, you know? Okay. I mean? So here's one of the, here's the discussion of Gnosticism here. So in the new Testament, we have this phrase called that says the God of this world has blinded the men's heart or the God of this age has blinded men's heart, right? And so if you're paying attention to uh, a lot of the things going on with the idea of age, and that there's an age under the uh, authority of the so-called principalities and powers, right? That currently rule the current world system. And that Jesus says, my, my kingdom is not of this world or not from this world, right? It's coming down into this world though. Uh, so there's the the god of this age, which is uh, equated to kind of the Satan figure, right? Uh, because he's the one currently in charge of the system. Uh, the uh, and Satan is just kind of a, a title that gets planted on this dude. Uh, there's never real any name of the great adversary. Like right. Lucifer is not an actual name, right? Uh, it, it's just like saying shining one which is just a bog standard uh angelic descriptor but uh so if there's there's a god of this current order and there's like other deities under him right as paul says there are uh, lords many and gods many but to us there is uh one god the father uh right right so there is is a sense in which we need to abandon the current world order and kind of ascend beyond that into the kingdom order, right? Gnostics, however, they interpret the god of this world as uh, Yahweh. Uh, there's like, okay, the god... Uh, so the Old Testament god, 
does some kind of sus things. So he's the evil God. And there's this new outer God that Jesus has come from. He's leading us to this new God outside of this world. So their, their big mistake is misinterpreting who the God of this world is. And they say, okay, he has these uh, uh, archons under him that do his dirty work. Whereas the actual Pauline view seems to be that the uh, Archonton and Susia, the principalities and powers, are aligned with the angelic god of this world, who is not Yahweh. <laughs> so that's where the that's where the real difference comes in. And then there's the assumption of the created world is itself evil because this god of this world created it, as opposed right. to saying that. Uh, the high god did create the world but it fell and became corrupt and then fell under the power of the current god of this age right and so that's the that's the issue in gnosticism yeah and i think for gene wolf i think he has a much more positive view of like i know this is like okay gnosticism the old ways will put like the pagan gods and we'll put yahweh in this book, it's revealed at some point, I think Silk is contemplating it or something, but he says that like Pos is probably just an aspect of the outsider. And so there is this idea of, the, of like, you can take this same kind of framework and sort of like flip it and make it positive where, you know, the outsider is the supreme deity. And at least in this universe, Pos being interpreted as an aspect of the outsider is like a part of the outsider but not the whole picture so you can kind of see like this development you know even in in history of like how some of these pagan like there's tendencies for the pagan deities to like split into different aspects and stuff and there's also some streams of thought that like oh well they're all actually aspects of the one being but mm -hmm. they are like emanations so you know the or lower, like failed, failed emanations. Right, stuff. right. The lower emanation still reflects the source from which it came, but it can be corrupted. And, you know, it's like the, if you, it's almost like the Kabbal, the Kabbalistic tree or whatever, where, you know, you have one aspect, another aspect, but if you take one without the other, it becomes corrupted. And I kind of think that's where Gene Wolf's going. Because, like I said, he does describe Poss as the, is a type of the era a reflection of the outsider or an emanation of the outsider so i think like in gene wolf's world you kind of do have this struggle between how to view that total framework like the framework well, I mean, is got there Sumerian, right <laughs> yeah well you got like the framework and um it's like how to interpret the framework like so like the outsider you have different aspects of the outsider blah 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 so in silk's world i think you you can actually hit the outsider by contemplating the different aspects of him and that's the truth but like the other struggle in the books is are the gods all evil are they all just lies but i think in the end for Gene Wolf, they're not lies in the sense that they're false, but they're not the totality of the whole picture. Yeah, I think this gets into like the, what's called the Logos theology, which is the idea that the divine Logos has gone out into these various cultures and kind of planted these ideas. And so mm -hmm. 
all these other religions and cultures do contain truth, but we're supposed to kind of sift that out if we're mm-hmm. really careful about it and say, okay, what is good about this? Right. And, or to encourage that kind of thing. Yeah. Right. Yeah, which totally lines up with sort of the Gene Wolf project in a lot of his books of showing that you can have a setting where like Christ hasn't come in the literal sense, but that you can have the appearance of Christian virtue and the appearance of Christian theology in other cultures because of, you know, that it all eventually descends from that. Yeah, I think that kind of ties into kind of our, uh, one of our things here on Nerdologians is we're not here to say, okay, you person from the other religion uh, uh, sucks to be you convert to Christianity, but to, to kind of engage in these various mm-hmm. dialogues, uh, whether the uh, material is like from uh, uh, Hindu or Islam or whatever, and kind of pull out what we think are deeper yeah. truths. Yeah, definitely pushing the study of the religions thing. And it really is a fruitful, I mean, you know, Gene Wolf does this all the time. Like in Wizard Night, it's like Nordic stuff. And then in Latro and all the soldier, and I would call Long Sun the same way, that it's like an exploration of how Christians, we'll call it like Christian virtue, like love, compassion, all those things can arise naturally from these pagan settings and how, you know, it, it's just, to me, it's it's just the divine logos idea, you know, <laughs> which is apparently an awesome uh, framework to write your stories on. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely appreciate uh, Gene Wolfe's new, more nuanced take on Christian fiction, right? And he's able to explore these ideas without just like shitting on them. Well, it's really interesting because, like, I think one thing we actually bring to the table that isn't in the other Gene Wolfe podcast, I was in a Gene Wolfe podcast, but you know what I mean, is that I'll notice in these podcasts where They'll be like, oh, this is like a Gnostic work, or this is like a Platonic work, or oh, obviously this is where Gene Wolf doesn't agree with the, like the church or Christianity in some way. And I, I just don't think that they are knowledgeable enough in the history of theology or something to know that like all of these ideas that he's casting in there that might appear to the uninitiated that they're like anti-Christian or something is that they're not. He's just drawing on like you know the logos idea he's drawing on this idea you know the the whole i still have this secret suspicion that he's influenced by certain people of vatican too and this idea of like the anonymous christian where for carl ronner the anonymous christian is like you grew up in a pagan land or something and you never had introduction to christ but you you can still practice Christian virtue without knowing Christ, which makes you a quote unquote anonymous Christian. Well, C.S. Lewis, to me, C.S. Lewis straight up goes there with uh, mere Christianity, right? Yeah. Where he says certain, uh, he specifically brings up Buddhists as an example, like certain Buddhists might be more Christian than certain uh, Christian priests. <laughs> yeah, agreed. <laughs> Big agree there. So, yeah, and I think that. Yeah, that is one thing that a lot of the other podcasts miss is that a lot of these things that they're interpreting as like Gene Wolf secretly deviating from the Christian tradition is just him like pulling this out of the Christian a, tradition. There's a Christian tradition that he's... Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What all did we want to touch on? <laughs> uh, 
Uh, I think we hit most of it. Um, did we did we fully uh, touch on the possession? Because I know in uh, New Sun, uh, we have a little bit of that possession thing going on. Yeah. Right. Because we have the whole Severian Thecla right. <laughs> thing. Yeah. Yeah, we can touch on that a little bit. Um, this is my current theory. <laughs> I'm always the, these books like. Are this, we are we going to get into the full uh, the full Gene Wolf? Uh, we might as well just we theory. might as well just go into it. I won't touch on Short Sun because it's so good that you just you got to read it yourself. But um, yeah, in Book of the New Sun, there is this whole thing where Severian takes this chick into him and now she's like a part of him but she's separate but she's a part of it but she's separate but she's a part of it and there's also this thing going on in there where there's a few mentions of like severian feeling like there's someone guiding him through things now it's sort of debated on what this is but if you take it i mean you got severian the like kind of the young stupid guy but thinks he's really intelligent and he takes in thecla who is always associated with like dove imagery and then there's like this thing behind him in some way that is controlling him and so it to me it's like messiah imagery where you know the severian is the son thecla is the holy spirit and whoever this person is that guides him is like the father so some people think it's a previous incarnation of severian and then some people think that's his like master malrubius and now there's a whole crazy thing to tie in with that but i'll just spoil it um my personal theory is that this person behind severian is shown to be uh silk in the short sun what yeah some people think it's like an older version of Severian, but I mean, dude, I don't know. This is the thing I've thought about for a while that I'm pretty sure the short sign just straight up tells you that Malrubius is silk transporting himself to Severian. <laughs> so the good in Severian is actually silk guiding him to be a good dude. But so in this one with silk, um, silk in the beginning of the long sun he talks about when the outsider speaks to him and there's like a voice like mountains and then there's a voice like something else that i can't remember that tells him the plan of pos or whatever so and it's debated on like is this pos because remember typhon had the mountain and now the voice like mountains could be typhon and then the voice of whatever is like kypris but so, you know it's debated on who these voices can be but yeah like for Gene Wolf, for whatever reason, he's really, it's almost like transgenderism or something, right? Where he's always like talking about trans identity and how you could be multiple people and then you can change and all this kind of thing. So, hell, I don't remember where I was going with this either, but. Um, yeah, he is playing a lot. He does seem to play a lot with identity because in uh, New, New Sun, you're playing with the identity of Severian. Is Severian Thecla, Thecla Severian? Uh, whoever else is right gets involved and in this we're playing with uh uh at least so far we're playing with kypris uh kypris possesses people who are they now right yeah and then uh i think 
now I can't remember this entirely, but like when Silk is in the tunnels, he has he basically he comes upon this big chamber and there's all these people in pods and uh Mucor, who is the one that can possess people, possesses one of the bodies in them and breaks they break out of the cage or whatever. And she's wandering around and it there's some indication that this Mamelta character, who is the person in the pod, is like the original Kypris. And he says something like it reminds him of his mother. And so now you get like, is Severian's mother Kypris as well? Silk's so, mother. Silk's mother, yes. Silk's mother, Kypris. So now you have you know, it's just like that's part of the book is that you like you have a hundred. There's like fifty characters in the entire series. Is that like, Kypris? Is that Kypris? Right. So it's this weird thing where it's like everyone is sort of like one of the gods at the same time. So I don't know, but yeah, super interesting discussions of identity and you know this aspect of you worshiping a god and you becoming like the god and all that kind of stuff so and you've hinted you've hinted it that in short sun we're still going to have a lot more of this identity stuff with oh uh, it's even yeah it's even other stuff it's so, even more right up so i i guess the whole solar cycle is an exploration of identity in some yeah form oh and then i did kind of want to talk about this a little bit i think i mentioned it in the beginning but we'll get into it just a little bit here at the end but one of the really cool things about the whole solar cycle is that um each of this okay it's composed of the book of the new sun and then earth of the new sun which i just consider part of the same series then you have the long sun and then you have the short sun now part of the kind of the innovation of this is that each of these books is a book written by a character in the story and that they exist in the story so book of the new sun and earth is written by severian Long Sun is actually written by the character Horn, who you have a few scenes with. And um, so in Short Sun, uh, part of what's going on is that there is a commentary going on on what happened in the Long Sun because Horn's view of Silk in the Long Sun is like, it's his hero. So he like makes it even crazier than Silk really was. And so you'll have scenes where uh, in short sense, where Horn will be like, well, actually, I wasn't there, but I talked to some people that were. And so then we like took Silk's personality and we like, you know, projected it on what we thought he would have said. So, and then, so like, I'll, another part of it is where one of the ways that the main character of Short Sun like gets around and is able to assimilate into these groups that he uncovers is that he reveals that he's the author of the long sun and that everyone that's like, so everyone on the planets that they go to is obsessed with this like myth of silk. And so when he goes to these towns, he's like, here, I have copies of the long sun. If you want to read it. And everybody's like, like yeah, copies. give us one. So he'll like, he'll like, yeah, he'll trade his book in order to like get into the town or whatever. And so that's, that's interesting because that brings back this air of, uh, unreliable narrator that we don't get so much in long sun itself but i guess once you get to short sun it turns it's like, out hey yeah. reread that but read it as unreliable narrator now because yep. yeah it's crazy <laughs> the other wasn't actually there for a lot of this and stuff. then in short sun it turns out that the narrator is actually silk 
after Green's Jungles, but he doesn't know he's Silk. He thinks he's the other guy. <laughs> so, <laughs> so now you have this whole thing where everyone, it's not, you're not the unreliable narrator. The actual character in the book is the one that's the only one that doesn't get it. So you, know, you got an inversion of this idea of where like the very last sentence of the book, the whole series is Silk finally realizing that he's actually Silk this whole time. But everyone else in the book knows he's Silk. He's the only one that doesn't think he is. So these weird scenes where he's like, you look just like that Silk guy from 50 years ago. And he's like, ah, you're crazy. And then, and then his own kids are like, I mean, we just call him dad because he wants us to. It's not that he's actually our dad. And all this kind of weird shit, but yeah, the classic identity confusion of Gene Wall. All right, all right. I think that <laughs> sums up a lot of what we've got yeah. here. There we go. All right. Well, I've figured out how to not shut this down while shutting my recording off. So hold on. <laughs>